0: Hi, you're listening to the Zoe Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Zoe Fellowship exists to have fellowship with God and with one another and to extend that fellowship to others through the work of Jesus Christ. This week's sermon is from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 through 25 and is preached by Pastor David Lee. All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. As you go there, I'll kind of go over what we've been going through. Once again, today we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter is addressed to elect exiles scattered around the world. Peter reminds Christians that they have a mission. We've been learning about that. We are to worship God by living in the hope found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are to be confident that we are born again to this living hope. Because we have been redeemed by the precious, infinitely valued blood of Christ, we are to be holy as God our Father is holy. Our minds must be transformed to think and behave according to God's character and not our own. It's not just about thinking what would Jesus do, it's actually doing what he'd do. We learn that we are becoming more and more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. Through the transformative power of the word of God, we are born into new life and called to love one another earnestly. We become God's people to declare God's glory. And display God's glory when we submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives we can display our love for God and for our neighbor and today we're going to be coming to the question of how can I find peace during unjust suffering so hopefully those things kind of spurred in your memory the things that we've been learning the past couple of weeks or not even the past couple of weeks it's been almost two a month a month and a half? Yeah, it's been a month and a half. So those were all the main points from the sermons. Hopefully they kind of rang in your head. You're able to remember some of them. So today it's really about finding peace in unjust suffering. And the text is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. You know, looking back in college, there was this one time I had a class, and it was called American Studies. I took it in place of my U.S. World History class. And so what I learned was the U.S. Cultural History I really liked the class. It was one of those classes where I would raise up my hand and answer the professor's questions, right? I was that guy. And we had a lot of assignments and they were mostly essay based. And so I wrote my first essay for the class. I was pretty confident about it. And I got back my grade and I got a 70. I was like, wow, okay, got a 70 on my paper. I'm pretty confident about my writing. So 70 seems a little bit low but maybe it's a fluke, right? So the TA had written like very vague instructions on there, like this is why you got a 70, and so I was like, okay, whatever, I'll take that. Next paper, I'll do better. Next paper I tried, I tried to put what the TA said into the paper, I got a 67. I was like, okay, I did what the TA asked from the first time into the second paper, and then I wrote it. I don't think it's it's grammar problems, like what is going on here? And so I went to the TA. So I went to Office Hours and I and went to the TA, I was like, hey, so I got these two grades and I'm really wondering how I can better my score because I'm not used to this. Like, I thought I was a pretty good writer. is it my writing that's the problem? Like, what's going on? How can I do better to make sure that I can pass the course? Because right now I have a 68.5, right? And the TA was like, man, you just, you just gotta know what to do. And I was sitting there at the desk. I was like, that's why I came here, to ask you, because I'm having trouble. That's, that's why I'm here. And the TA is like, yeah, um, you know, it's college, uh, and you just got to figure it out. <laughs> I, I, like, I, I didn't know what to say. I, I was in the seat, and I was like, are, are you kidding me right now? Are you telling me that I came here to ask you for the help? You're the TA. This is your job to, like, help out your students, and the TA just wasn't having it, so I ended up leaving, and I was super frustrated. So I went to my professor, and I was like, okay, professor, look, I tried. <laughs> I, I got a 70 on my first paper, got a 67 on the second one. I went to the TA, asked for help, and she didn't say anything. And the professor was like, look, I got you. Um, let me take a look at your paper. So she took a look at my papers. She's like, oh, these are perfect. I'd give this one like a 96, and I'd give this one uh, like a 94. I was like, so what's going on then? And she's like, the TA is just grading on a PhD level, so that's why you're getting those grades. Don't worry about it. If it happens again, I'll let you know. Because the thing is, in college, the TAs are who grade your stuff. It's not the professor, right? I remember at that moment, though, when the TA was like, yeah, you just got to figure it out. I felt so wronged. I, I just felt so, like... This is not acceptable. As a student, when I come for help, I should be able to get help, and, and you shouldn't blow me off like that, and you should be the one to help me. And because that didn't happen, I felt super wronged, and then I reacted just with like a really big bitterness in my heart. And when I went to the professor, it did get better. But yeah, I really felt that bitterness inside me. And we're gonna be kind of talking about that, just how it is that we deal with unjust suffering today. But some context is important. Some context is important because we're talking about servants here, but really it's about slavery, right? The word used for servants here is um, better translated to be slaves, but it's like a household slave. So it's not the necessarily manual labor slave that you might be thinking of. But the statement probably resonated very strongly with many in Peter's audience. Servants and slaves are the biggest group of people in the early church. The Greek word used here is not douloi, which is like the commonest form of slave that's used, but it's something called oiketai, which is what I was talking about. It's the household servant or the household slave. In the Roman Empire, as many as one in three in some places or one in five in others were slaves. So it's a very common thing. It first started off as prisoners of war and Rome didn't have that many slaves, but over time their population grew drastically. And the slaves included people like doctors and musicians, teachers. All these were part of that slave um, grouping. Basically, all the work was done by slaves. There is this understanding that if you're rich, if you have money, if you have power, then you're supposed to live a life of idleness and your slaves will do all the work for you. And so if you're working, you most likely were a slave. Now, something about slaves is this. They don't really have any worth, and they don't have any rights. Slaves couldn't marry. If they had any children, the children would be the master's children. It's up to them to do what they want with the children. Think about it. If a sheep had a lamb, that lamb isn't the sheep's. It's whoever owns the sheep. Like, they own the lamb as well, right? It's kind of like that. There is a guy named Aristotle, you might have heard of him, he's a Greek philosopher. Uh, He once stated in the past, there can be no friendship nor justice toward inanimate objects. Indeed, not even toward a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common, a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. And so a slave has no rights. A slave never gets to experience justice. It's not even a thing to be grasped for a slave. And into this situation then of slavery comes the gospel. Everyone is precious. All are made in the image of God. Everyone has inherent worth and value. Within the church, there's no social barriers. So you could have a servant and a master going to church, and maybe the servant has been going to the church longer. They're in like a position of leadership and the master isn't. The thing that we see here, though, in 1 Peter is that he doesn't overturn the man-to-man relationship. So if there's a man-to-man relationship of servant and master, he doesn't say, oh, because you're in Christ now, that relationship no longer exists. You don't have to abide by it. That's not what he says here. A servant should be even more subject to his master as a Christian, work even harder for his master, and show the utmost respect. I know this can sometimes run into a problem because we don't see the New Testament writers really calling hard for an abolition of slavery. Paul does state it's good not to be in slavery if it means um, if you have a means out. So the Apostle Paul is like, hey, look, If you are a slave and you cannot become a slave, then take that route. Don't be a slave. There's a story of a guy named Philemon who had a runaway slave, Onesimus, who came to Paul and they talked and then Paul's like, hey, you got to go back to your master. So Onesimus goes back to his master um, and gives him a letter from Paul and that's the letter of Philemon. But even with that, um, that idea of slavery the idea of owning someone it's still there and so sometimes people have a problem with it it's like oh wow how come the bible is not like super against slavery it almost seems like they're allowing it to happen there's not a huge call to revolution but think about it the christians in this time don't really have political power And really, mainly, there are are a lot of slaves within that group. If Christianity were to be about overthrowing authority, if Christianity was about um, getting rid of the government and doing their own thing, how well do you think that would have been perceived by the world? Would that be the idea of love that Jesus wanted to show to the world? No. There have been slave revolts before, during this time. They were put down. The better word would be they were crushed completely. Right, so revolt, revolution, that's not what the message of the gospel is all about, right? We have to understand then that not everything works in the time frame that we would want it to. Not everything works in the time frame that we want it to. It's like bread. Who in here has ever b- baked bread before? Anybody? Anybody? Baking bread, no? One, two, okay, okay. I'm sure there might be some people listening that bake bread. I know That's bake that sourdough bread, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. When you bake bread, there is something called leave-in that you use, and it's what makes your bread rise. The problem is this. If you try to cook your bread and don't allow time for the leave-in to work in the bread and for it to make it rise, it's not going to, and you're going to have some really bad bread. That's just what happens when you try to hasten it, when you try to quicken the process. If you consider Christianity to be leaving, then it would take many generations for it to kind of take effect and for it to get completely rid of slavery. And over time, that's what's happened, right? It's just that there was a gradual shift towards it. It wasn't like a revolution and a quick change that happened. But over time, the message of the gospel did indeed Get rid of slavery, right? And so it's important to remember that God works in his own time. And while the Bible doesn't explicitly say, you know, slavery is the completely wrong thing, we should never do it. We're going to see that it does kind of still talk about that. And we'll see that kind of play out a little bit today. Now, while we can say, okay, then, I, I kind of I get that that makes sense. Slavery, it was there, it was a real thing. Um, and how are slaves supposed to act, right? How are slaves supposed to act? Let's see that. So verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So the first thing we see in this section is that slaves are to be subject to their masters with all respect. If you remember... In verse 13, or you can look at it too if you have your Bibles, it says, Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's every human institution. That's including, but not limited to slavery as well. And it's for the Lord's sake. So this is about God. Then in this section, it's not just about being subject to your master, but it's really also about being subject to God. Christians are freed men in the Lord. Don't get me wrong in that. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24 states, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So Christians are freed men. Yet at the same time, Christians are supposed to be subject to their masters for the Lord's sake. The reason why a Christian slave submits to a master is not because of the master's authority necessarily, but because of God's authority and the fact that he commands Christians to be under earthly authorities such as your master in a slave master situation. We see in the text that the subjection is to be with all respect. This could also be stated in all fear. Recall verse 17 of 1 Peter 2, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. He's probably making connection with that as well the fear of God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, with fear, not just to the master, but ultimately to God. Be subject to God, respect God, fear God. 19, for this is a gracious thing then when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter calls Christians to be mindful of God when suffering unjustly. So the fear of the Lord is part of the subjection when slaves put themselves under their masters. And this fear isn't like a, I'm so scared, I don't know what to do. It's more of a fear of dishonoring God, a fear of not trusting in God, not trusting that he's a loving father. It's a fear of displeasing him. So when suffering unjustly, one is to be mindful of God knowing that it is ultimately in the context of the fear of God and not man that the subjection takes place. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And this passage got me thinking, why would a slave suffer when he's complying? When he's doing the right thing, why would the slave be getting punished what is the suffering that's happening it makes sense that sin should be punished right if you're if you do something wrong yeah okay i can see why that would be the case but what is it saying here maybe you might think if you're grasping at straws oh maybe someone lied and told the master the slave did something wrong um and then the master's like okay you know what i'm going to punish the slave because of what i heard and i trust in that person even though the slave did something wrong oh that's like suffering unjustly no that's not the case here because it says the slave is suffering for doing good, right? This would mean that being subject to one's master and doing good might not even be the same thing all the time. If doing good is what the master regards as bad, then the Christian slave will get punished for that, right? But as a slave, what needs to be on the forefront of their mind is the fear of the Lord, the mindfulness of God. That's the priority and living as a Christian even do good even if that results in suffering think of God not the master you might be thinking here like pastor David this is all good but you keep talking about slaves why are you talking about slaves we are not slaves here so how is this relevant to us I would argue I would argue here that Peter is really talking about all Christians right all Christians are to honor God and to live a life that is proclaiming his excellencies. And in this section, he is addressing slaves and masters. But we see both in this letter and other parts of the Bible that we too are to be subjecting ourselves to all authorities. We all experiences experience these type of subordinate relationships, teachers, professors, police, governors. And so we are also part of this category. Yes, we're not slaves in that same sense, but we do have people of authority over us. And so even this teaching here is applicable. Peter says, doing good and suffering for it and enduring it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And this word gracious is actually used elsewhere too. Jesus says in Luke 6, 32 through 36 this, if you love those who love you, what For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. This is a gracious thing as a statement, right? Here, instead of gracious meaning something like God's unmerited favor, it's more of what pleases God, what counts with God, what gains his approval. There is the feeling here that God not only looks at you for doing good and getting treated unfairly and unjustly and understands, but that there's a benefit that would come from that. When you suffer unjustly, keep God's favor in view. Remember that he is keeping in an account that it will be made up to us someday. That's how we can get through feelings of injustice. We've got to trust in God. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, what is this call? What is it a call to? Call to what? To this. What is this? Suffering unjustly. The calling of all Christians is to suffer unjustly. Think about that for a little bit. The calling of all Christians is to suffer unjustly. Does that make you uncomfortable? Is that at odds with what she thought about Christianity? The calling of all Christians is to suffer unjustly. We can expect that our righteous behavior will cause us to suffer. Persecution is normal. Why? Because Christ also suffered for us, and He gave us an example. And the ungodly of our day is no different than the ungodly during Jesus' day. Both do not know God. Both the knowledge of God is folly to them. Both cannot understand the light. Jesus, Christians. Yet Christ has died for them. But remember, Christ also died and suffered for you. Why? To save you from your sins, yes, and to give you an example how to live the word here used for example is hoopogramos, right this is a word that comes from the way that children were taught to write so there's two things that it could be one is that you have your writing thing and there's something that's written and you have to copy it underneath so it's the example that's given and you copy it underneath the other is that there's a template and you you write inside the template and so you're following what was already pre-planned and made out for you and this is the word used here for example So Christ has done that for us. Now what we're supposed to do is go in and fill in that template, right? Or we're supposed to copy that written word. Jesus has given us the example, so we then need to do it. So that you might follow in his steps. 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ illustrates this scenario for us with his life and death. He committed no sin. Remember, sinning and then having to reap suffering, that's normal. That's just the way it is. But not sinning and having to reap suffering, that's what's hard to understand. Jesus never sinned. Deceit was never found in his mouth. He chose not to revile or to heap abuse. He did not threaten. He wasn't up on the cross saying, when I come back, I'm going to get you. I'm the best there is, the best there ever was, and the best there ever will be, right? He didn't say stuff like that. He didn't threaten the people that persecuted him. Jesus took it. How are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to do that? Well, what did Jesus do? It talks about it here in the text. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He stayed on the cross knowing that even in this unjust situation, true justice would reign supreme. He could have killed everyone. He could have judged them on the spot. But he chose to stay on the cross knowing that his death paved the way for life And that God's justice against man's sin would be satisfied in the shedding of his blood. Jesus kept entrusting himself to God who judges justly. One of the biggest obstacles that I find that we face in returning good when evil is done to us is that we have a feeling that justice has not been satisfied. When something evil happens to us and we react, we want to react with anger or whatever it might be. We want to react in sin, sometimes just as bad as whatever was done to us. And we'll go after that because we feel like if that's not done, justice has not been served. If that person is not punished the same amount that I was hurt, we feel like justice has not been done. And that's why it's so hard for us to practice this, to respond to evil with love. But we got to see here that that's not what Jesus did. It's important to see how Jesus reacted. We got to understand that with God, everything will be judged. There will be justice, 100%. If evil doesn't come around and repent, then evil will be judged. But if one who commits evil, unjust acts against you, repents, then praise me to God, right? God is faithful and just. He will cleanse a person from all unrighteousness for that person just like he did for you. We're on the same boat. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus became the perfect substitute, The one who was without sin took on sin. The one who was blameless took on condemnation. Peter gives a purpose here after that. Do you see that? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The chasm, the great gap that once existed between man and God is bridged. It's overcome by Jesus' death and resurrection and a saving work on that cross. The righteous has paid the price for the unrighteous and made a way once more. Christ died for our sins that our sin could be put to death within us. We can separate ourselves from our sin. We can then follow his call for us to live in righteousness. Failure to do that is sin. As I've been reading these verses here, 21 through 24, you might have noticed that there is a strong tie to a Old Testament passage. That is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is about Isaiah prophesizing regarding a suffering servant sent by God. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to flip to Isaiah 53, and I kind of want us to actually go through it, and you'll see, oh, I'm pretty sure I know who this is talking about. Isaiah 53, it's like one of the longest books in the Old Testament. It is the longest prophet, major prophet, Isaiah 53, it's about 12 verses. I'm gonna, I'll read through it slowly. Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before cheers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering Jesus is the perfect example of unjust suffering. And he was a suffering servant of God. He went through this unjust, undeserved, underhanded circumstances. He was tortured and then crucified in the most excruciating death during the, at that time. He sets the bar for us. We looked to him in our suffering. It says, be like Jesus, right? Jesus has put out the graph, He has put out the stencil, whatever it is, and we're tracing that in. But what did Jesus do? He died on the cross. He obeyed God even when it was difficult. Remember Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, Father, if if, you're, if this cup can be taken from me, please. But not my will, your will be done. That's obedience to authority. That's saying, look, I understand my place. And so I will submit to one who is greater than me. And that's what Jesus did. And he is our example. Verse 25, the last verse. For you are straying like sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The shepherd is one who tirelessly looks over his sheep. He protects them from harm He is weather-beaten, sleepless, yet ever watchful. If there's ever a predator, he is aware. If there's ever not enough grass, then he's looking for new grass to graze on, for his sheep to graze on. He's vigilant in keeping watch. That's Christ. Now, there's this other word here, overseer, or episkopos. This is a word that has some sort of, some history behind it. It was used of hector. You might know him, he's the great champion of the Trojans. He guarded the city of Troy. Episcopos was also used for gods who are guardians of treaties, which men made. For example, justice is an Episcopos who makes sure that man pays the price for wrong that is done. Plato's writing called law has guardians in it that oversee the games. And that's the same word Episcopos. So the word translated overseer is many-sided, yet it's always noble and has to do with protection or a guardianship. Jesus is our guardian. He is our guide. He is our protector. He is the one who watches over us. He is our overseer and our shepherd. In conclusion, in conclusion, we can see this. Unjust suffering is real. When you look out in the world, you see it everywhere. Unjust suffering is probably real in your personal life in some way or form as well. You you probably experienced it. What did I do to deserve this? I don't understand, right? And this type of suffering where when you do good and then you end up suffering, that's like the worst. Because you feel like, man, I did good. Something good should come out of it, but I'm suffering? How is that right? How is that just? How am I supposed to understand that? How do you understand that? It's our calling. We're called to unjust suffering. We have one example for us to copy, the main example, that's Christ. He is like the epitome of unjust suffering. It is hard to understand. I bet with coronavirus going around, there are people who, for example, South by Southwest, right? You stock up on all your goods, you're ready for the event to happen, boom, gets canceled. What are you supposed to do? You still have all this inventory. Like how, how is that fair? How is that right? I don't understand. Hurricane comes when your natural disasters happen. How How does this, I don't get it. When you do good and, and you get cursed for it, or if you're doing really well at work, somebody else takes the um, recognition for it and you don't get recognized. Someone steals your idea and they get famous with it, whatever it might be. We feel unjust injustice all the time. We feel it all the time, but we need to think about it in light of God, in light of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And then as Christians, how we respond to it. The way that we respond to it is by trusting in God. It's by remembering Jesus and the example that he set. In Jesus, we can find peace in unjust suffering. Let me pray for us.